Well, there's a term that's been going around in management circles for several years called VUCA. VUCA is an acronym, and VUCA stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. It was a word that was formulated by the U.S. Army War College, and it was first introduced back during the Cold War when there was this situation where everything seemed like it was uncertain. VUCA refers to a set of circumstances where it seems like things are converging in such a way that it's almost like we're drowning in the world that we're living in, where things are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. One writer named Jaron Krechenbrich describes these words this way. He describes volatility as, uh, as referring to the speed of change in an industry, market, or the world in general. It is associated with fluctuations in demand, turbulence, and short time to markets, and it is well documented in the literature on industry dynamism. The more volatile the world is, the more and faster things change. Certainly, volatility is a word that we could use to describe our current situation. As a country, we've gone from a situation where about a month or less ago, we were experiencing economic highs that were unprecedented, uh, and we were really going in a good direction as the country, at least economically speaking, and in the span of just a few weeks, everything has changed. The stock market has crashed. On March 9th, we had one of the biggest losses, or the biggest loss for the stock market ever. And then contrasting to that, on March 24th, we had one of the biggest gains ever, the biggest gain since 1933. So we wake up each day, and we're really not sure what's going to be happening. We've seen so many different changes to our way of life in just the last few weeks, changes that previously probably we wouldn't even have dreamed would be possibilities, but they're happening at a rapid pace. And each day, we experience more and more changes. We live in a volatile world. Krechenbrink describes uncertainty as referring to the extent to which we can confidently predict the future. Part of uncertainty is perceived and associated with people's inability to understand what's going on. Uncertainty, though, is also a more objective characteristic of an environment. Truly uncertain environments are those that don't allow any prediction, also not on a st statistical basis. The more uncertain the world is, the harder it is to predict. Again, uncertainty is a word that we could use to describe our world today. It is so uncertain. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us wonder if the jobs will be there when we return. There's uncertainty about what's going to happen to us. Are we going to become ill? Are our loved ones going to become ill? Are they going to even potentially have to be hospitalized or die? Or are we going to die from these things? There's so much uncertainty, and we wonder when it's going to end. And we wonder if, it, if it's going to go back to normal. Are we going to go back to a place of where we, we used to be? We live in a world that's uncertain. We live in a world also that's complex. 
The author describes complexity this way. It refer, it's referring to the number of factors that we need to take into account. Their variety and the relationships between them. The more factors, the greater their variety, and the more they're interconnected, the more complex of an environment it is. Under high complexity, it is impossible to fully analyze the environment and come to rational conclusions. The more complex the world is, the harder it is to analyze. Complexity certainly describes our current cultural situation. We're currently trying to figure out a way forward because we don't know as a culture what to do because there's this illness that we don't really know a lot about. We know it's very contagious. We know that it uh, is, can be very, very deadly, can lead to uh, hospitalizations, perhaps long-term damage. But there's a lot that we don't know about that. And we, there's a lot that we don't know how we should be handling it. There's a lot of complexity involved in that we need to shut down for at least a time, but then how do we get back to normal? And what are the steps to get there? And when will we know when it's the right time to act again? The world is also defined by ambiguity. Trajan Brink describes ambiguity as referring to a lack of clarity about how to interpret something. He says the situation is ambiguous, for example, when information is complete, incomplete, contradicting, or too inaccurate to draw clear conclusions. More generally, it refers to fuzziness and vagueness in ideas and terminology. The more ambiguous the world is, the harder it is to interpret. Of course, it's ambiguous times. I mean, researchers are combing the data and studying the information coming out of China and South Korea and Italy. And what's amazing is that the information is pretty different. In Italy, there's very high hospitalization rate, high mortality. And then in South Korea, it's much lower. And in China, it, it tends to be lower. And then we're trying to comb through the data and figure out what's going to happen and what our next steps should be. I was reading a New York Times article the other day, and they were given kind of the best and worst case scenario. And these experts were looking at the data and trying to determine what was going to happen. And the best case scenario, they said, was that it, this kind of dies out within a month and a half or so. The warm weather comes in. People start to get immunity to it. Uh, therapeutics are effective. Eventually down the road, several months down the road, there's a vaccine. And we kind of come out of this and put this behind us. The worst case scenario is that it spreads to most of the country. Over 2 million people die. The world goes into a depression even perhaps greater than the Great Depression. Millions lose their jobs and we're completely lost as a country. Hopefully it doesn't get to that. But you see, the evidence, the facts, it's both the same, but it's so ambiguous that we don't know what the future holds. So we live in this culture described by this acronym VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And the question is, how do we deal with this reality? How do we live in a VUCA world today? Well, I believe the Bible gives us some answers. I believe specifically Psalm 46 gives us some answers. Verse 10 of Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word for be still 
Uh, one Hebrew dictionary describes it as to cease acting, to linger. Another translates it as sink or relax. I believe the word speaks of being calm even in the most difficult and tumultuous circumstances. We might translate it as chill, relax, be quiet, be still before God, have peace. And this passage gives us some reasons that we can be still before God. It gives us three reasons why we can be still. The first reason that this passage gives us is that we can be still because we serve the God who speaks order into our chaos. The psalm begins by telling us three things about God. Number one, God is a refuge to us. Number two, God is our strength. And three, God is a very present help in time of trouble. So the fact that he's a refuge to me indicates a defensive posture. That when we're in trouble, when we're in need, we can run to him and we can find protection and we can find rest. The word for strength to me indicates an offense, of offensive posture. The fact that when we come to God, there's no enemy that's too great for us. But what does it mean that he's an ever or very present help in time of trouble? Well, I had a friend when I was in seminary, or you might call him a so-called friend, and we spent a lot of time together. Uh, we would go to the cafeteria and eat dinner together. We would uh, sometimes run together. We were in a small group together. We lived uh, close to one another. And I thought we were good friends. But then one day, I needed something. And I asked him to help me with that. And suddenly, as soon as I needed something, he wasn't available. He was nowhere to be found. He was too busy. And he was fine when things were going well to eat dinner with me or to run with me or to be in a small group with me. But when I needed something, he was nowhere to be found. You know, and I think about that and I contrast that with some of the relationships I have now uh, with friends and I think especially of my parents. And I think if I had something that I needed and it was 3 o'clock in the morning and I called up my parents and said, hey, I really need you. They would be like, okay, we're on the way. We'll be there as soon as we can. They're very present in time of need, in time of trouble. And that's what God is to us. God is very present in times of trouble. We have that kind of relationship with God that no matter what we're facing, no matter how dark the circumstance is, all we need to do is cry, cry out to him, and he's only a prayer away. He's very present in times of trouble. He doesn't leave us in our distress. He doesn't leave us when we're broken. When we are broken, that's when He runs to us. That's when He knows that we need Him the most. And so we serve a God who is there for us. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is a very present help in time of trouble. And the passage tells us that because of these things, because of the fact that God is a refuge to us, because of the fact that he's our strength, because of the fact that he's a very present help in times of trouble, we don't have to fear. 
Look at what it says in verses 2 to 3. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at his swelling. So we look at this passage, and in the ancient world, when people would think about the oceans or the seas, they represented something that was kind of worrisome, kind of fearful. And oftentimes the waters represented the forces of chaos that threatened to undo the things that God had done or the thing that, things that men had accomplished. They represent the forces of destruction that seeks to overturn everything that's created. And we see this kind of understanding perhaps even in the Genesis account of creation. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, it says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, and then into that context, into chaos, God speaks the word, and then chaos recedes, and creation is born. We see serve a God who, when he speaks, chaos recedes. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we see the situation where a mountain is being threatened by water, that an ocean or a sea is threatening to overtake this mountain. That is something that is immovable or thought to be immovable, thought to be steadfast. A mountain is being overtaken by the forces of chaos. Years ago, my family went on a vacation to the New England states, and we went to New Hampshire and we went up Mount Washington, which is one of the biggest peaks in the northeast United States, over 6,000 feet. And as we did so, uh, as we started going up, I started to be filled with more and more and more fear because the roads were very, very narrow. There was traffic coming from both directions, and I was terrified that we were going to go off the edge and plummet to our death. But here's what I didn't worry about. I didn't worry about the mountain moving into the sea. I mean, it was worrisome enough that I had to worry about going off the edge, but I didn't worry about the mountain going into the sea or the sea overtaking the mountain. Because if that happened, then we got some really big problems. If that happens, the foundations of what we know about the physical order have been overturned. If something that is immovable, that is unstoppable, that is steadfast, is being overtaken by something that is supposed to be separated. And I think that's kind of what's happening in our culture today. The foundations, the things that we think or thought were steadfast, that were immovable, they're being shaken. They're being overtaken by the forces of chaos. And we think about all the things that are happening in this world and all the chaos that is abounding with our government and the fact that the government is reeling, the economy is reeling, our health care system is either being overwhelmed or threatening to be overwhelmed. Our families are filled with stress. 
Our grocery stores are often bare of some of the necessities that we need. And we think about the fact that even as a church, I mean, a few weeks ago, I would have never dreamed that we would be doing a service here online rather than meeting in person. And those things that we trusted in, that we hoped in, that we felt were steadfast, that were always going to be there, those things have shaken a little bit, and it seems like the water is coming out and the chaos is overtaking them, like the chaos would be overtaking a mountain. But we don't need to fear because we serve a God who when he speaks, chaos has to recede. We see, serve a God who speaks the word and creation comes into existence. We don't need to fear the chaos. The chaos will not overtake God's people. Remember the story of Jesus in the book of Mark. Jesus is with his disciples in a boat, and there's this terrible storm that comes upon the people. And what is Jesus doing in that circumstance? Jesus is being still. It says that he was sleeping in the stern of the boat. And meanwhile, there's this great storm that is going on, and the disciples are terrified, and they come to Jesus, and they probably violently wake him up, and they're like, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care that there's a storm out there? And then Jesus gets up, and what does he do? He speaks a word, and the chaos disappears. He speaks a word, and the, there is quiet, there is stillness in the waters. It says in verse 39, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And so as believers in Jesus, we can be still, we can rest in the arms of God because we know that we serve a God who speaks chaos out of existence. He speaks the word and chaos has to run. But there's a second reason we can be still before God. The second reason is that God has given us the gift of his presence. Look at what it says in verses 4 to 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the place where God's dwelled, it was a city through whom God would bless the world. And the text tells us this city is immovable. This city is filled with joy because of the fact that God's presence dwells there. And notice the imagery here. It says that there's a stream that goes into the city. And the stream makes glad the city of God. In God's economy, that chaos is kept within its bound, and that chaos, metaphorically, could even serve God's purposes and God's people. And so the text is, tells us the city is immovable, and we know that as believers, that our destiny is to be in a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a place where God dwells. And we know that when we get there, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be filled with joy because we're in the presence of God. But I believe that we can have a foretaste of that joy now. That we can have a foretaste of that security now because we have the presence of God that dwells inside of us as believers in Jesus Christ because we have the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. 
In John chapter 7, Jesus said this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John comments on that. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So as believers in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who transforms us from the inside out. And because he lives inside of us, it's almost like we have a little city in and of ourselves. It's almost like we have that protection that that city of Zion had. That it doesn't matter what's going on around us, that we can have a peace inside of us. See, God doesn't ever promise us that we won't face trials. But he does promise us that those trials don't have to overwhelm us. We can't control what the future holds. We can't control what our circumstances might be. But we don't have to be consumed by fear and by worry about what those circumstances are going to be. Because God dwells inside of us. So as believers in Jesus, we can have peace that to the world seems like foolishness. To the world, it might seem like there's no reason to have peace. There's no reason to be still. There's no reason to, be, to rest. But we can have that kind of rest because God's presence resides in us. We might feel like the world might think that there's no reason to have joy. But as believers, we can have joy because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. God's in our hearts. He dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And so we don't have to be afraid. We can live lives of joy even when the world around us seems to be falling apart. The promise that Jesus is with us and in living inside of us changes everything. Dallas Willard, famous spiritual writer, lost his mother as a young child and he tells a story about another child who lost his mother and he was afraid of the dark. He was afraid of the night. And so he kept asking his father, Father, can I sleep with you? And so his father said, yeah, you can sleep with me. And so he came in and slept with his father. And yet he was still terrified of the night. He said, Father, can you, is your face turned towards me? The father said, yes, my face is turned towards you. You're not alone. I'm with you. And it was only when he was assured, not only that his father was with him, but that his father's face was turned towards him, that he could rest and have peace. See, as believers, we have the promise both that God is with us, that he lives inside of us, but also that his face is turned towards us. We have the promise that God has given us his son that he has not spared any, other, any good thing for us. And if he's not spared any good thing, if he's not spared his son, then will he spare anything to give us anything? We have that assurance that God's face is turned towards us. So we can be still. We can be still because we serve a God who speaks order into chaos. We can be still because God has given us the gift of his presence. And finally, we can be still because the greatest trials we face are nothing to God. The text talks about the nations raging in verse 6. 
And when I think about the nations raging, I think of the images of the Lord of the Rings or any kind of warfare movie type movie. And you think about the forces of evil kind of marshalling all of their troops. You know, and you think about them getting their catapults and their cannons and all of their forces together to war against the forces of good. You know, and you think about that image and you think about that maybe on a more modern scale, all of the nations preparing to unite against God's people and then God just speaks the word and says the earth melts. He just speaks and the earth melts. It says in the text that God is, is, is a fortress. It says the God of Jacob is a fortress in verse 7 and 11. Now remember the story of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Remember Esau was the older brother and Jacob stole his blessing and his birthright from him. And because of that he had to flee from his father's household uh, rather than face the wrath of Esau. And so he went to the land of Paddan Aram and while he was there he married uh, Leah first, then Rachel. He had, some, had children and then sometime after that we're told that Jacob is told that Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. Now Jacob thinks this is the end. Now Jacob thinks that there's no more to his story. And so he cries out to God. And he's terrified. And yet what happens? God changes Esau's heart so that Esau comes up and he sees Jacob in the distance and he runs towards him and throws his arms around him and kisses him and is so happy that his brother has returned. Now to Jacob, this was a huge deal. To Jacob, he had done something terrible to Esau and he felt there's no way that Esau could forgive him. There's no way that Esau isn't going to kill him and put him to death with all these troops. And yet in God's mind, it was nothing. It was nothing. To Jacob it was everything, but to God it was nothing. It was such a small thing. God wasn't going to allow this to thwart his purposes for Jacob. My, my son, Paul, has had many skin issues. Uh, he's had severe cradle cap and eczema. And my wife and I have tried everything that we, 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 have, we can to try to help him with that. It, it's really a easygoing, good child. But we could tell he was really hurting from these skin issues. And we tried everything that anyone told us. Any, any kind of ideas that anyone had, we, we tried them out. And we tried, you know, half a dozen different creams and ointments and different techniques for those things to try to help him. And nothing that, I, that we could do would help him. And we took him to the doctor, his, his primary doctor, and they gave us some cream. The cream helped, but they said, well, you can't take that. You, have, you can't give them the cream for very long. And so basically they told us, we don't really know what to do. We don't know how to treat him. Uh, I don't know if there's really much we can do, but go to the dermatologist. Maybe they can help. And so we have an appointment for the dermatologist. And at least for me, I'm not very encouraged about, about going there. I'm thinking... Like, if the doctor couldn't figure, out, figure it out, um, I don't know that this dermatologist is going to be able to do anything either. And so we're pretty discouraged as we go there. And it's this huge deal to us. 
And then we get to the dermatologist. The dermatologist comes in and is like, hey, here's what you're going to do. And, and I'm confident that if you do these things, his skin is going to clear up. And she went on to tell us about how her children has had similar issues and how this is something that's relatively common and that he'll probably outgrow it. And she gave us specific instructions for how to care for him. Now to us, this was a huge deal. Now to us, we're at our wit's end thinking, what are we going to do with this child? He's suffering and nothing helps him. But to her, she had seen this a hundred times before. To her, it was nothing. Similarly in our lives, I think sometimes we face situations, situations like this pandemic where to us it's this huge deal where it seems like the world is ending and there's no hope, but God is like, this is nothing to me. All God would have to do was speak the word and coronavirus would recede. Now first of all, let's pray that he does that. I mean, if we serve a God with that kind of power, let's pray that he does that. Let's pray that he causes this virus to recede from us. But also, if he chooses not to, let's hold on to the hope and the truth that God knows what he's doing. That God does care for us. And if he doesn't cause it to recede, he must have a very good reason for that. We can be still because there's nothing that's too big for our God. So we can be still because God speaks order into chaos. We can be still because God has given us the gift of his presence. We can be still because the greatest trials we face are nothing to God. So how do we sum this up? I believe we sum it up this way. We can be still because God is is still God. We can relax. We can be still because God is still God today. Remember what verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. He was God yesterday. He was God two months ago and He will be a God a hundred million years into the future. God is still God and so we can be still and rest before Him. Remember the story of Job. Remember, he was a man who was righteous before God, who had great wealth. He had a great family, well-respected, most likely in the community. And God and Satan are talking one day, and God says, consider my servant Job. Satan says, well, of course he's going to serve you. You've given him everything. You just take some of that stuff away and he's going to curse you to your face. So Satan is allowed to take some of those things away from Job. Job gets to a point of desperation. He, he, physically, he is in agony. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. His friends come and give various theories about why this is happening. But Job maintains his faith. Job maintains his innocence, but it seems like he's wondering, God, why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow this when I'm your child, when I'm righteous? In the midst of that, God responds, and he doesn't give an answer 
for why he allows it to happen. But he responds and he essentially says, Job, are you God? Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? Were you there when I spoke the worlds into existence? And sometimes we need a reminder. In times like this, we wonder, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing this to happen? But sometimes we need the reminder that God, he's still God. He knows what he's doing. And we can be still and we can rest before him because he is God. So we started by asking the question, how do we live in a VUCA world? How do we live in a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous? And I think maybe the answer to that question is, we don't live in such a world. To our human perspective, it seems volatile, it seems uncertain, it seems complex, it seems ambiguous, but to God, it's going right according to plan. He knows what's going on. And so we can rest, we can be still, because God is still God. To God, it's not volatile. To God, it's not uncertain. And we can be still, and we can know that God is God. One of C.S. Lewis's books was the, Dawn of the um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in that story, there's a young girl named Lucy and her brother, Edward, Edmund and their cousin Eustace, and they're taken to Narnia where there's this Christ figure uh, who's a lion named Aslan. And the three of them go on a voyage and they come to an island that's called Where Dreams Come True. But these aren't good dreams. These are nightmares. This is the island where nightmares come true. The ship's crew is overcome by fear, and they begin to row as furiously as possible to get away. And everybody begins to experience kind of their worst nightmares, and people start to see things that are terrifying. One person sees huge scissors. One person sees enemies crawling up the side of the ships and gongs and these terrible things. And in the midst of that, Lucy cries out to Aslan, and she says, Aslan, Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. But the darkness continued. It did not seem to grow less. And yet she started to feel a little bit better. She thought to herself, after all, nothing has really happened to us yet. And then the story continues. A ray of light falls on the ship and Lucy sees something in it like a cross. It is an albatross. The albatross circles them three times, lands on their mast, and then flies ahead of them, leading their ship out of the darkness. But no one except Lucy knew that as the albatross circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice was Aslan's. In a few moments, the darkness turned into a grayness ahead. Then, almost before they dared to begin hoping, they had shot out into the sunlight and were in the warm blue world again. And all at once, everybody realized there was nothing to be afraid of and never has been. Ladies and gentlemen, 
we can be still today. We can trust in God. We can have peace. We can have joy. Because today, tomorrow, forever, God is still God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who created the heavens and the earth. You're the God who spoke and chaos fled. That you speak order into chaos. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who cares for us, who loves us. We thank you that you're a God who is so powerful and so great that our struggles seem insignificant in comparison to your power. Lord, I pray for those who are listening under the sound of my voice today. Lord, I pray that you would comfort their hearts, that they would turn to you, that they would be still before you, that they would find peace in the midst of the storm we're experiencing today, and that they would know definitively that you are God and you are in control. God, give us that faith today. Help us to believe that you are who you say you are. In Christ's name I pray, amen.